1: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Architecture. I'm your host, Kimberly Zarecor from Iowa State University. Today I'll be talking to Jeffrey Balmer and Michael Swisher, the authors of Diagramming the Big Idea, Methods for Architectural Composition, published by Rutledge in 2012. In the book, they offer some new insights into the eternal problem of how creativity works. As you'll hear, they're beginning design instructors and colleagues at the University of North Carolina in Charlotte, where they teach architecture students how to communicate their ideas and concepts through diagramming. The material for this book developed out of their teaching and the realization that students and professionals needed more resources to nurture their design thinking skills and methods. Of interest to both architects and anyone who wants to know more about the design process, this book explains how and why diagrams work, provides examples of successful diagramming strategies, and offers step-by-step instructions on how to make your own diagrams in two and three dimensions. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Hi, Michael. Hi, Jeff.
0: Hello. Hello, Kimberly. Kimberly. Hello, Kimberly.
1: Today we are speaking with Jeff Ballmer and Michael Swisher from the University of North Carolina at Charlotte about their new book, Diagramming the Big Idea, Methods for Architectural Composition, that was put out this year by Rutledge. And I'd like to start by asking you guys to tell us a little bit about yourselves. And Michael, you can go first.
0: Well, I've been teaching um, first year design uh, for a very long time. Um, I uh, um, have been at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte in in what is now the School of Architecture for 25 years. Um, uh, With the exception of three years during which I ran the thesis program, I've been in first year um, design, uh, the entire time. Um, it's, uh, it's what I like doing. And, uh, so I, uh, I, I, that's, that's who I am. My background is, is that I have an, an architecture degree, uh, BA with major in architecture from Washington University in St. Louis. Um, I studied painting in Germany and, uh, received an MFA in interrelated media from Massachusetts College of Art back in uh, 1980. Um, And uh, uh, my teaching career essentially amounts to teaching first-year anything for a really long time uh, at a lot of schools. Um, uh, I'm a painter. Um, I actually made a living as a painter before I started teaching at University of North Carolina. And um, uh, my interest in first-year is because it allows me to Re-examine the beginning of the knowledge of design, architecture, art, whatever it is, uh, over and over again, um, and that uh, that sort of appeals to me um, takes on my philosophical side more than anything else. Um, and uh, uh, my my uh, contribution to our our uh, collaboration is is that I come in with a fairly strong background in. Um, uh, visual analysis, visual design, visual principles, um, and drawing, which, of course, forms the core of how I've always taught. And, um, and I lean on Jeff um, for being much more of a, a, an architectural um, thinker than I am. Um, uh, architecture is part of a visual study for me, um, as a whole and I, I, without speaking for Jeff too much I'd say that it's almost the inverse for him which has been a perfect compliment. I think that's enough about me.
1: <laughs> Thanks. Jeff?
2: Well, um, I'm a colleague of Michael's. I, I joined uh, the faculty at UNC Charlotte six years ago and I've been teaching with Michael um, in the first year program for for the last six years. Um, I'm originally from Toronto. I'm a graduate of the University of Waterloo, and I practiced for several years before returning to grad school um, and um, was a student and then eventually a, uh, a, a faculty member at Iowa State, where eventually I was a colleague of yours, Kimberly.
1: Yes. <laughs> and
2: uh, that brings me back here to UNC Charlotte. And that's it. That's that's all I have to say about
1: myself. Okay. So let's talk about the book. Um, this is a different kind of book for our New Books Network. Um, it's a book about teaching design. It's a book for students. It's a book for the general public. It's not a history, although it does have some uh, historical content necessitated by the idea of the diagram. And I was particularly struck by your formulation uh, in the introduction of a definition of architecture that says that architecture is organization toward a purpose. And I wonder if one or both of you could talk a little bit about how you came up with this definition and how it's driven your development of this whole book. That's around the idea of the diagram. Well, I
0: suppose this is Michael. Um, I suppose I should take blame for the, uh, for that definition. Um, it, 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 arose uh, a number of years ago when, when one of my students just asked in the, in the room, uh, so what is architecture? And, um, uh, and I, I, I put my philosopher's hat on and um, uh, thought about it and, and realized that um, the one thing that uh, architecture small a has um, is the, the notion of order built into it. Um that is when we talk about the architecture of computers, when we talk about the uh, uh uh architecture of a paradigm, um, all of that is relating to uh the notion of how something is organized, and uh and the next step that comes in is it's organized to do something very particular or be something very very particular. And so um the the simplest sort of five cent word for that is purpose. Uh, and, um, and then I, I, I think that the argument is, is that when architecture decides to put on a capital A um, uh, and become our subject, that that purpose starts to have a, um, a, a much more narrow focus or helps, or helps to narrow the focus of the discourse. And um, uh, so that's, that's really the origin, um, the, the things that architecture tries to organize uh whether it's space whether it's form whether it's material all of that is in service to sort of a human purpose and um and uh, uh, uh and and recognizing that in that sense it stops being an object and becomes a kind of principle that's visible um uh sort of clears uh, clears for me away a lot of the, lot of the detritus of, um, of buildings and what they look like. Um, instead, it starts to ask uh, uh, what do they really embody um, when, when they're going about being buildings or being architecture for human beings. After all, we can talk about landscape architecture and we don't have buildings there at all. Um, so there must be some sort of correspondence between uh, uh, between. Buildings as architecture and landscape as architecture and and all sorts of things and even urban design I think which which is a sort of outgrowth of architecture and um, uh, so that's where that that's where that um, uh, arose um,
2: is that is that a reasonable yeah I think that's the origins of the definition as far as the this is Jeff as far as the origins of the the project um, it was really a result of uh, my role, when I, when I started, um, was to follow uh, – I was, I was teaching the fall of second year, and I was, my task was to follow what uh, Michael and, at the time, Greg Snyder, who was a colleague of ours. Michael and Greg developed this incredibly rigorous first-year curriculum, and my task was to try and dovetail uh, a follow-up. And as a result, I, I was looking around for uh, how to fit in what I had brought from my experience to something that um, matched the rigor of, of the first-year curriculum that was in place. And so what I, what I, I approached them with was, you know, um, how do I – what resources do you guys use um, to, to, to teach and to show students how to diagram you know, I think there's this expectation among beginning design faculty that somehow we just expect students to know how to diagram. And my experience had always been that students just, you can't just do that. You you can't just expect students to know. It. It's, if you do that, then it's very trial and error. And what they told me is, Greg, in particular, I remember he recommended Douglas Graff's um, essay on diagrams. And, you know, if you've read that, you know that it's written at a very high level. It, it, but, but Greg had recommended it because it's one of the very few uh, resources out there. Um, so it was recommended out uh, out of a sense of, you know, sort of desperation. The other text that exists is the um, the very, uh, in many ways, very uh, worthy um book by uh, Clark and Potts out of uh, North Carolina State, uh, uh, Precedents in Architecture. But um, having examined it, it you know, it, despite its apparent clarity to people who are practiced at looking at architecture, um, it's less than useful for beginning students because it depends upon a very practiced eye. And so what, you know, what I, what I then said to Michael and, and Greg and some of my other colleagues, I, I was teaching with another colleague, Peter Wong at the time I said, you know, there's nothing out there. We, it looks like, you know, this is a book that needs to be written. You know, there, there isn't a book that explains to students, uh, in simple terms, uh, how to go about diagramming. And that's, that was the origins for the project. Michael explained very, very um, aptly the origins for the definition of architecture that begins the text, but that, that, that's the story that explains the origins for the, the project, the, the recognition that something along the lines that I think we produced just didn't exist. You know, there, there's also Frank Ching's books, but those are great as sort of, um, Ching's books are great as references, almost as a sort of encyclopedia, um, something to turn to and almost a kind of manual. But we wanted to produce something that would, um, you'd be able to follow as a kind of narrative. There,
0: there are, this is Michael again,
2: uh, as if there was someone else in the room,
0: but uh, um, there are sort of two other threads that might help make, uh, uh, add, add to that. Um, and uh, both of them are are largely pedagogical. Um, Uh, They have to do with uh, what we expect to happen when we're teaching people. Um, The the model, unfortunately, for a lot of uh, architecture schools, and and this is something I think that is inherited, Um, I don't think anybody started off to do this, is that um, the beginning design allows people to come in and get sorted out. And uh, what I mean by that is it it finds the folks who already have some kind of naive but present um, sense of visual order. And uh, almost as if you were testing for um, the ability to um, hear pitch in a music program. Um, And uh, those those who uh, fall short of that are discouraged one way or the other from going on. Um, by attrition, and, and by attrition, and and so you 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 have historically, and this is true of the schools I went to, these uh, sort of horrid numbers of uh, letting in eight people and having one person graduate, um, and uh, it's almost as bad as law school, you know. And um, the uh, it seemed to me that that was uh, not only uh, sort of tragic, but it took the first year and it wasted it. Um, uh, incentive teaching, uh, the first year often becomes a kind of uh, entrance examination. Um, and, and, and precisely because uh, there's this screening going on, um, it means that the, the, uh, uh, the pedagogical handoff from first year to second year is often, okay, here's who survived. God knows what they know, but they all seem to have what they, uh, what it takes. And, um, uh. Well, you know, not wishing to spend my uh, uh, life as a teacher being a screen. Um, And this is one of the things that we've accomplished at the university, at our school, um, is a fairly rigorous and attentive uh, application process. Um, This has been going on for a long time. And I think in the last six or seven years, it's borne fruit because the Pedagogy started to match this the the application process, but we really commit ourselves to our students. In other words, we don't let people in the room if we don't think they have some capacity to learn uh, the stuff of architecture and of design. Um, And then the task that comes for the first year is to um, make sure that everyone has um, the same uh, skill at recognition of, of the elements of order um, and uh, secondly they have a sufficient facility at handling the tools of an architectural program um, drawing model making um, and, uh, and some intellectual skills as well the ability to discuss things um, and uh, this, this leads to hopefully the beginning of a sort of loop between recognition and, um, and, uh, facility, um, and, and, and begins that, that sort of, uh, iterative process that, that ultimately leads to their ability to talk about what they've done and, um, and to examine what they've done with a real critical eye. So, so the question is then, all right, uh, how do you start that process? And the guiding, the guiding principle that's in the book and and also uh that comes directly from our teaching is to uh, insist that uh, nothing is uh, nothing is knowable if you can't attach to something that you've done in architecture in other words uh, in other words visual recognition is not passive um uh it 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 is the beginning of a process in which you actually make something whether it's a simple drawing or uh or a simple model um, there is a, uh, an attempt to um, build a very strong relationship between one's intentions and one's accomplishments. Um, that is, that doing really uh, proceeds from um, thinking. And um, uh, I'm borrowing here the, um, the language of the poet Auden, W.H. Auden, in, a, in an old essay of his called Thinking, Making, and Judgment. In which he really talked about uh, writing poetry as a as an act um, more than as a concept, and um, and that this this iterative process of of seeing what you've done and developing a capacity to critique it, the building of what he calls an in, in, in internal sensor, um, it, it goes on and on until you actually find yourself being able to look at your own work and seeing something that is unique and original but also that has arisen from uh, a kind of larger tradition. Um, this is the bias of the program. Um, this is what we keep trying to get better at. Um, and so the, the first question is, what do we have to tell them to get them to do something so that they understand what they've done? Um, and uh, uh, it, it, is, it is saying, in, in effect, we have to start with a bl- blank uh, uh, screen but we provide the elements in there. We don't wait to see what sort of nonsense the students have uh, stashed in their little pocket. We start providing them some tools and some procedures and some language um, for, for looking at architecture. And this is where Jeff's insight, um, I, I think, has uh, led us to use, uh, finally, uh, to take it out of the realm of that sort of visual training and, and moving it directly toward um, architecture with capital A of um, uh, uh, trying to ask the uh, taking note of the of the notion that architects don't make buildings they make drawings they make models they make instructions and uh, and it's not too much of a jump to realize that those things those representations of architecture are um, in some sense always diagrammatic um, so so uh, where. Uh, Clark and Paws start with the building and then put an overlay of arrows, circles, black marks, whatever it is, uh, in, in analysis of an existing building, um, that, that there's a design process in which you sort of accumulate diagrams uh, almost like a hol- hologram. And at some point or another, you can actually imagine a real building inside of that diagram, so that there is uh, uh in, in a sense an overlay of the diagram with the architectural act or the architectural experience that's not all that dissimilar from the pleasure of reading a book and recognizing that there's a thing called plot and character um, that um, and subplot and all of those things we learn in uh English literature courses or, or that coming out of a movie, we can actually analyze what's going on in that film uh, as a way of enriching our understanding. And and in fact, that filmmakers have a language for describing that um, uh, and, and on and on with almost any anything that would be called a professional activity, something that that that's organized around a set of principles and actually proceeds from a tradition. Um, uh, so the, so, uh, uh, what we, what we have here in the book is an amalgam of that process, um, uh, largely extracted from, um, uh, the teaching that we do, um, because it, it seemed to be rather successful, but pulling back one extra step and, and, um, making sure that, uh, uh, that, that in absence of having us there in the studio, the, um, The projects were self-explanatory to allow someone to begin to uh, build that process of understanding for themselves uh, outside of our studio.
1: I think it's so uh, interesting to think about the change in architectural pedagogy that's happened recently that we're finally moving away from a model that sort of cultivates the genius figure, you know, that we're all hunting for the next great designer, and instead says that architecture and other design fields are um, knowledge bases that we can teach and that students can learn, and that they don't have to come with the perfect eye and they don't have to come as the best artist in the room. But in fact, if we understand architecture as a form of organization, organization of information, or organization of of purpose, that uh, a lot of students who maybe historically hadn't thought of themselves as being the right kind of people to be architects could be Brought into the field. And so not only is this um, project of yours to kind of think about pedagogy in a different way and offer tools for other people, uh, a way of, you know, enriching teaching, but it's also, in a sense, opening up the discipline to to more conversation and more people and um, linking it to other disciplines that have already Gotten to this point a long time ago. I mean, there's very few disciplines left out there that would say that what their job is is to somehow uh, call out everyone who's not quite good enough and only hold on to the superstars. Um, it's certainly not a model yeah, for, mean, uh, for success. It's,
2: it's, yeah, you're right. Absolutely, it's it's it's, it's uh, very contrary to the even you know the the, the experience that I went through. Where you know less than fifty percent of the uh, classmates I started with finished, and uh, it's quite striking. Because now, as a as a faculty member, um, we're going through a process now um, university wide where uh, there are a series of initiatives designed to uh, enhance uh, um, uh, retention. Uh, retention among right. freshmen. And uh, believe it or not. At our university, uh, we as a department are considered a leading example of retention among freshmen. an mm-hmm. architecture school among the highest uh, rates of retention among freshmen. Can you believe it so it's
1: that um, 's so working it,
2: it 's a real sea change and yeah. and I think it 's an example of um, i think the way that the the way that architecture' is going to have to adapt not only. Do we feel it's a superior model? But it, the way that you know education, uh, post-secondary education is changing. Um, I don't think it's going to be viable uh, to, to sort of uh, hold on to the old way of of uh, uh, having mass attrition as a sort of standard model as it as it has been in the past.
1: Definitely.
0: And I also let me extend on that, I, um, and, I, and I can say this because I'm I, I'm not a licensed architect, and um, uh, I, I'm an architectural teacher. But I, but uh, my um, my soapbox always sounds like this roughly, which is that if the only people who understand architects are architects. Then they have failed. Um, it seems to me that uh, this is not a secret handshake. You know, we're not some sort of um, group of Masonic cultists. Um, all the masons hate that. But, you know, um, <laughs> instead uh, uh, instead of a secret handshake, the, one of the things that we should be doing is saying, being able to say what we do in a simple enough way that ordinary people can appreciate it. And I use that word appreciate in the old-fashioned and and correct sense of really understand it um you know when people used to teach art appreciation it wasn't like i like that that's not appreciation it's i understand that um and uh uh that may perhaps be a fairly conservative approach which i don't like the word conservative at all but uh, but I think that it, it says something about the sort of shared prospect of architecture. You know, if if we get upset that uh, somebody wants to tear down a great building, um, we we should recognize that in some sense we have failed as um, as 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 a as a, pra- uh, as, a as a practice um, to engender in in, in folks uh, a reason for maintaining good buildings other than nostalgia. Um, and, uh, it, it seems, it seems to me that, uh, this is really the big challenge in the future for architecture. You know, it it is, if it is really actually going to become something that fits within a kind of democratic view of the universe, then it has to, uh, um, drop some of its more comfortable elitism, which includes the sort of star program, right. Um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, uh, make itself clear and accessible and open the dialogue of what it's actually trying to accomplish so that, uh, it can actually talk about it.
2: I, I agree. Um, we have our work cut out for us, but as we also agree, Michael, uh, and as Peter Green, Greenway has pointed out, you know, we we have an additional challenge that isn't, it's not of our own fault that we live in a culture that, um, where we spend, uh, um, almost our entire educational um, um, emphasis on understanding words and numbers, and we spend almost no um, time and effort on understanding visual um, information and visual knowledge and so when we when we get students who start um, architecture school design school we 're Starting with essentially raw recruits, um, so so architecture students, beginning design students in general, have a double challenge, and and those of us that teach them have a double challenge. We're, they're not only facing a new field, um, a new discipline, but they're also entering an entirely new field of knowledge or a new system of knowledge or a new language. Um, it, it's it, it makes it doubly difficult than someone who might be starting a career in law, for instance, because they've spent their first 18 years reading, um, writing, uh, and so forth. They understand the value of of written language and the the power of the word. Uh, A student starting um, the study of architecture has not had 18 years prior to that understanding, interpreting, uh, appreciating, the 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 system of knowledge that is uh in the, within the visual spectrum or or has received a very limited um, understanding of that entire spectrum uh, and so that 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 puts architects at a disadvantage and so making what architects do clear uh, is of utmost importance but it it, it it's an additional challenge um uh, to us uh, to fellow architects because we we don't live amongst a society that is given uh an uh, an equal background in terms of their general education so so the work that we we have cut out for ourselves is is additionally challenging, and so we have to work twice as hard i think to make people understand why uh, the threat of a demolition for uh, a, 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 an important building is is extra difficult for us to try and convey to the general public.
1: So let me bring that that idea back to the book, because I think what you just articulated about language and building up the student's capacity to use this professional language is really reflected in the way that you organize the book. Um, I think Clark and Paz, if I remember correctly, um, have more of a thematic uh, way of thinking about things, that there are different types of diagrams and, and different groups of buildings, and we can use different diagrams to say different things about buildings. But your book is very different because what you show in the book is that you have to start from somewhere in, in order to get somewhere else. And so it's a kind of building up of the language and knowledge base. And that's right. related to the way that you've organized the chapters. So why don't you guys say something about you know the setup of the book, the way that, that the general public might interact with it, the way that design teachers and students might, and you know how your philosophy of what your objectives are is reflected actually in the way that the book is put together.
0: Sure. This is Michael again. And um, I think I think the first, the first thing that you encounter in the book, in fact the largely the um, first two chapters, are trying to sort of set up the ground um and and uh I, I take i i got a great deal of inspiration early on from um my uh my late brother who was a concert pianist and um he wrote me this note once uh because i had always done his posters and his his graphics for him sort of as a way of staying up with his emerging career and he he had let himself go and forgot to write me and so he tried to make a poster and uh And he he sent me the results, which were amusing, but the better part of that was his his notion is he said, "I never understood what a blank page was um, until I stood there and said, "God, where do I start and um that that's some, of course something that those of us who uh, supposedly had it before we went to architecture school probably didn't experience consciously we'd been filling blank pages for a long time with, with whatever um, we thought was important. And so, so the idea of working in a visual field was not something uh, uh, totally foreign. And I uh, um, uh, so we start. We start essentially um, trying to explain how something uh, uh, amounts to a visual field, how something goes into that visual field, and then how once it's in there, we go about taking it apart. And we do that, of course, with an architectural bias, because of course we're talking about things that are going to relate to architecture um, in a very direct manner. Um also it's the only way to keep the book uh from being, you know, a, a ten thousand page magnum opus. Um and uh and in that we 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 lean on the language of gestalt. Um uh it it has its issues, but it's also the clearest language, regardless of its um uh, uh shaky grounds, um, in, in, in some psychological circles. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and, and of course in this way, we, we also pay homage to, um, uh, uh, Colin Rowe, um, and, uh, and, and in fact, uh, Peter Eisenman as well in trying to, uh, allow students to, uh, literally grapple with trying to make sense of a, of, of a, Intentional mark, an intentional move that happens on a piece of paper and to be able to see in that something that amounts to, uh, uh, uh the, the possibility that that could be a physical object in a real sight Um, and, and getting that starting from that really simple idea, um, of getting folks to then see the sort of diagrammatic life of, of these drawings as being a way of quote, end of quote, uh, walking through the site, being able to have a metaphor of experience that 's uh, the equivalent of being able to hear a voice when you read a nice piece of writing um, to actually literally have that sort of synesthetic merger of uh, what you see on a page with what you um, hear in your mind uh, so that so that getting uh, getting them to direct their attention to that that very simple psychological um, uh, game of seeing into something, something else. That is to look at a drawing and see something that is manifest as form um, to literally see the page pop and become volumetric because up until that point, all the pattern making in the world um, uh, is only half useful. Um, uh, what What's really important is the tension between the, the diagram the drawing, the representation, and, and what it is you're trying to see that you're going to predict this is going to be built. Um, and, and so that uh, uh, um, the third chapter, then uh, the third chapter is really uh, amounts to the first four days of our class, um, uh, uh, highly articulated, right? And um, which is leading folks to just see a, a basic threat that happens in drawing, which is figure ground, um, so that you not only see the figure, but you see the ground, you see the negative space, you see, you know, all of those things that the visually alert um, take for granted and do without thinking and making uh, making that, that uh, game um, uh, something that's apparent. Uh, it, it's a little bit like what happens to a sports fan. And I'm not a sports fan, but uh, uh, they become very expert at not only just seeing whatever physical activity is going on, but they actually compose in their mind this sort of uh, meta entity called the game, you know, where somebody is trying to do something and either succeeds or fails at it. uh, In in a sense, they see a conceptual diagram, a mapping, a sort of outline of the action and separate that from the actual action themselves. Um, you know, at the point that they get really good at that, they could coach. Um, because it is that, it is that, it is that meta sense of being able to see the game at work, um, that, that, uh, uh, that has to happen first. And, and in, in the, um, first half of the book, we walk in a very, very careful way through a sort of, um, increasing complexity of a sort of architectural reality. Um, although, although there's no scale to the uh, first event, um, although I can imagine someone else doing it with scale, but for us it's, it's really looking at it as a scaleless thing in which it, you inhabit it with your mind where, where the students draw and then they model and then they draw and then they diagram and then they model and they go back and forth and, and our, all our discussions lead off with, uh, uh, you know, with questions that really bring to the surface what they're learning to do. They're they're learning to be able to sort of conflate their models with their drawings, their diagrams with their drawings, mm-hmm. all, all of that stuff, um, and and build up a, a kind of um, emerging uh, workable consciousness. Um, it, we're at the six week period in the semester as we yeah. speak, and I was talking to my my own little section of uh fifteen students and um you know there there's a lot of head nodding going on they they know they're in the game now um and uh, um and this is a good point right, but it takes a while you know it ta- it takes a while for, for um and uh, uh and at that point then they can start to uh, assemble an appreciation that is based on their own personal experience they uh, they are able to see in projects including their own things that could be different, whether that's right or wrong um, and uh, and then we've sort of succeeded as as teachers because we've got their interest and their um, so it's about a capacity to articulate yeah and 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 they do they get all of a sudden they can talk about it i mean we had a really nice Class with everybody, all all all, uh, all sixty students in the room having a, 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 an open discussion. As as one of our colleagues flashed images with the question, "Is this an axis or a path?" And you know, to see a bunch of eighteen year olds like get real excited about taking a, a taking a position um, is is uh, <laughs> it's it's, it's, a, it's fun. You know, you go all right. You know, they 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 may be naive, they may not know a whole lot, but that they're starting to look for the right stuff. And and I, I think that, you know, we, we, we feel in first year a lot that, you know, at the end of the first year, that's what we've done. We've taught them to look for the right stuff and given them some good manual tools that are intimate with those, with those questions.
1: Does that make sense? Yeah. Jeff, do you want to say something also about the structure of the book?
2: Well, yeah, as... as I think Michael's largely pointed out that um there's a there's a master structure in terms of the organization of chapter to chapter, and that uh in in one sense um, I guess the big picture would be that there's an introduction section there's an introductory section of the first few chapters the next several chapters uh um Give an, provide an overview for the curriculum uh, or um, that leads from basic pattern recognition uh, ultimately through a kind of uh, fairly complex articulation of three-dimensional um, architectonic space. Um, that leads to a pair of chapters, chapters 8 and 9, which lead through um, sort of case studies that diagram... Uh, Projects uh, by architects, well-known case studies. Um, That lead um, them. Lead that we work through those case study projects in a very specific way that articulate a set of diagrams that define an an analysis of those projects. Um, In Chapter Eight, the the two projects that we look at are specifically chosen because they uh, exemplify two-dimensional architectural analysis. And Chapter 9, we look at two projects that are um, more fully realized as three-dimensional entities. And finally, um, both because Michael, as a, as a, as a painter, is a very excellent painter, and because of the nature of the publishing business, we, we were given the luxury of having a certain number of pages in color. And so we, we opted to put them all at the back, and organize them around a chapter uh, devoted to color and color theory. And so that's the final chapter, chapter 10. So these are our 10 books on architecture, as it were. <laughs> um, but each chapter, so there's a sort of micro uh, uh, structure within each chapter. And so there's a, the main body of each chapter, the main essay. Uh, there are a series of examples that we organize towards the back, a kind of... Um, that act as an addendum and then within most of the chapters is a sort of um, uh, case study essay Um, and that's, you alluded to the fact that there is a sort of sliver of history within each of the chapters and that was one of the roles that um, I undertook so there's a sort of um, uh, there's this little sort of um, dessert at the end of each chapter that uses um, uh, examples from history Uh, they're a bit more narrative in nature and the the, um, the role that those little miniature essays was designed to play was to try and embed very abstract nature of the uh, initial discussions, you know, the very geometric abstract pattern uh, processes that we begin with, and to try to embed them in very in very very concrete um, uh, case study uh, precedents, um, and uh, to try and. I, I, um, and, uh, instill the uh, the idea in the students reading this book that we may um, be describing very abstract, geometric, uh, uh, pristine principles, but these are at the core of uh, the most sort of um, uh, uh, tangible, uh, earthy aspects of architecture. And so the very first example of this uh, um, in chapter one, at the end of chapter one, describes the act of measurement as being absolutely fundamental to architecture and how it lies um, at the very origins of architecture. And then it's a very you know, it's, it's a very um, tangible and physical act, the act of measurement. Geometry is, uh, in the end, uh, uh, embedded within a very uh, physical act, the act of laying out the ground. Um, and so that that, that um, That description exemplifies the sort of internal structure of the chapters uh, that um, then is played out across a larger structure um, uh, that describes um, the nature of the organization of the chapters as a whole.
1: And, And at the end of the introduction, you give a little set of definitions, and all the chapters have them as well, but there's a definition in the introduction for archetype, and as you were talking about the way that history functions in the book, I was thinking that um, one thing that you're teaching the students are that there are these archetypes that that constantly appear and reappear. And as you say in your definition, it's an ideal form um, that existing things approach but never duplicate, and that the diagram somehow distills for us from buildings of any time period, really some aspect of those archetypes that we're always duplicating and, and, and never really copying, if that makes sense. And I think it's so important for architecture students to understand that, you know, as a historian, somebody who teaches the design students, both design and also history, I'm constantly trying to get them to see that history is not something separate from them and is not something useless, but is in fact the the um, embodiment of that whole idea of the archetype, the kind of repetition of these core compositions and and core spatial ideals that people have been thinking about for thousands and thousands of years. And a diagram of Hadrian's Villa is, in some sense, just as useful as a diagram of the Getty Center in Los Angeles, um, even though they may feel formally or stylistically more connected to something like the Getty or any other example we can think of. And so um, history plays a very active role in design in a way that a lot of students, when they first arrive, don't really see it. And I think the diagram is a really wonderful way to link those. Um, And I really appreciate in the book that you, you worked hard to do that, that it's not a total abstraction, but in fact, this is a tool for building the knowledge base that includes history. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and of course um, uh, we're inspired. I, I teach um, uh, a, a writing seminar that we we give as a sort of gen ed substitute for the second year students. And one of the the um, essays that we always have the students read, of course, is uh, well, not of course, but is uh, Rose's "Mathematic Mathematics of the Ideal Villa," where he um, compares a diagram of uh, Palladian villa and and a Corbusian villa. And the students are always astonished when they first see the, the side-by-side comparison because, of course, initially they look at a Palladian villa and Corb's villa and they, they see nothing in common. But when they when they see the diagram that Rowe has, has made of the two villas, they, they see that there is this there is this um, similarity in, in a diagrammatic sense between the plans of the two villas. And the, the, the essay is, is a sort of unpacking of of how there are these underlying themes. Now, you know, some have contested that as a as a solid analysis, but it does serve as a starting point. And in a sense, um, as Michael mentioned earlier, uh, Roe, Eisenman, others who have, have sort of uh, played that game um, have, you know, served as inspiration for the way that we've looked at um, the work that was ahead of us in this book.
1: Yeah, so now, uh- I- I- can I want to ask you a hard question a little bit that relates to this sure. issue? Because as I was looking through it, I was thinking um, about the current debates about the global within architecture and the the ways in which the canon is is good and bad uh, for for us as architectural educators. And there's two aspects of this that I want you guys to talk about. Um, and and I challenge you to talk about it partly because I think. Um, it's important to discuss it but also i'm curious to hear your opinion on it and that is that you've chosen your examples from fully within the western architectural canon and you've you've chosen buildings that at least the teachers are all going to be very familiar with and there's not a lot of challenge to you know what's what's in or out in terms of importance and and everything is pretty western so that's one side of it and then there's also this issue of of formal analysis versus some kind of cultural contextual analysis and you both know that architecture has been really moving to toward this more cultural model of design and I think what your book does is reminds us and something that I always need reminding of that fundamentally you know architecture is a is a formal proposition because we are always arranging things in compositions and in space. Whether those arrangements are culturally informed or not, there, there is still form. So I wonder if you guys could say something about the choice to use these kind of classics as your case studies, and also the critique that some people might have that your methods completely take the cultural context out of the discussion.
0: Well, um, this is Michael, and I, I, I will I will talk about it as the sort of formalist in the crowd, um, uh, and and also about um, my own pedagogical uptick on that. Um, uh, part of the part of the notion of using things that were familiar was so that the graphing of our ideas to architecture would be more uh, more easily done. Um, uh, I uh, that is uh, that these are these are not esoteric projects. These are almost archetypes, um, and uh, if the majority of them are in the Western canon, um, uh, I, and I again only speak for myself, so am I. Um, and I I I I personally distrust um, people who drop in uh, like interested tourists and start making comments about other cultures. Uh, the way that I defend that is, uh, um, I, I think back, uh, it, it, to something that happened when I was a student, I was talking to, um, uh, Buford Pickens, who was this wonderful scholar of American architecture, who also happened to be an architect. And, um, uh Buford and I were having a discussion. I, I really loved him. I was his slide guy. Um, I used to sit in the back of his class and push buttons for him. Um, but uh, we were talking, and he looked at me with, with that sort of, like, tired look of that I probably have on my face. because He was about 65 at the time, and said, Swisher, here's the deal. As soon as you put four walls around something, you have a courtyard. You have to see that. We have to understand it. all buildings start from that proposition. Now go away and think about it for a while. And I, it, it's safe to say that I've carried that around for some 40-odd years, that, that the defining of space, um, regardless of the cultural context uh, or whatever political commentary, and I don't use that uh, um, as a dismissive, uh, but uh, is still at play. Um, and it's at play in all cultures, it's in play whether they're stacking mud in a circle like our little project of the Bampo hut, um, whether they're, uh, or, or they're or they're or the, the, the structure of um, of, of glass, um, trying to make walls around a courtyard that's called the interior. And um, so, so I uh, uh, for me, when I would argue for our the projects that we ended up doing. Part of it was, is we needed formal clarity or we would be writing another book. And, um, and if you look at the structure of our text, we have 1,200 images in there. This is pulled, this is called from, and, and is not bragging, from about 6,000 that we use on a routine basis while we go about teaching the first and second semester of our, our program. And so part of this was, uh, uh, you know, what do you edit out in order to be able to finish it all? In order to be able to have an articulate uh, 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 an articulate trail, there's a a, a a kind of compression that goes on through the text because we're trying to teach the basics. The first four the first four chapters of the book, so that's roughly 80 pages out of 250, are uh, cover the first week um, in terms of the projects. The next two chapters cover the next five weeks, the next chapter covers another five weeks, and the final two chapters cover an entire semester. Um, this is uh, uh, as a narrative, that was a real challenge. And and, and I think that as tempting as all those other things were, I, I, you know, I, I certainly have certain um, beliefs, and I know that Jeff does as well, um, I think that that would have gotten in the way, it would have muddied the waters. Uh, I'll take the criticism of being a Western person because I am. Um, I operate inside of the Western Canon because otherwise I would be insincere. I, I know that the Vedics uh, came up with the Pythagorean theorem. I think that 's great. I also think it 's just an interesting piece of information what What matters is, is does that thing have any life right now and we, 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 it, it, part of the uh, uh, part of the benefit of grabbing some of the canon. Um, is, um, is, to, is to grab some of the canon and make it work as an educational tool and not as a cultural tool. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I would love to have someone who was, you know, uh, uh, an architect in India look at this and tell me something that I, I missed or screwed up. But I certainly don't feel very good at being able to go, well, if I was, you know, if I was a non-Western architect, well, would I look at this? Ah, I don't have that answer. That it would be extreme humorous to pretend that I actually could concoct that. Now that's my point of view. Um, but mostly, I, it, mostly, it was just, for me. It was not a matter of thinking it out as an intention, as much as it was accepting it as a limitation of a book that's got 250 pages to do way too much.
2: Jeff. Well, I would. Well, as far as bias goes, um, I was working. Within my own limitations, uh, Kimberly, as you know, I've taught a lot in Rome. Um, not only are the examples we've listed within the Western tradition, but you'll note, um, with few exceptions, that they're they're also very um, uh, they're, they're, they're very focused on Rome itself uh, because they're examples that I know well. They're examples that I I've seen and visited and have studied and have taught. So I um, uh, I was not aiming at a, a universal uh, approach. I was aiming for examples that I was familiar enough with to be able to speak with s- a s- something approaching authority. Um, there were examples that were from non-Western traditions, but they, they were chosen because I felt that they were the most apt example that I could I could think of um, as far as formal versus contextual I agree those are equally important um, we teach first year we f- have made the decision that before context comes a, a basic um, language of form uh, we're, we're teaching compositional skills um, if we were if you know we if we were to do a follow up and teach us series based on how we might approach diagramming in second or third year then certainly we would in, in, tackle the issue of how to diagram uh, uh, attributes and, and issues um, in, um, in inherent to architecture beyond the, a basic language of form but um, the, the, the focus in this book in no way suggests that form is more important um, than, than context or any of the other issues that, that are equally valid. So, the, the, so that, that, that's my account for mm-hmm. the, the biases that are present in the book.
0: Can I add one more thing? Yeah, Just, yeah, just sure. so you um, – one of the other things that we did when we were discussing our choices is we made choices that everybody thinks they know, but for which no really accurate drawings existed. And um, uh, we, we had to redraw everything um, from uh, and, and, and had to actually find out what sizes things were from two and three sources. It was really surprising to me, for instance, and, 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 uh, that there were no accurate drawings of the Danteum that were available. I mean, if we had flown to Rome and, say, given us the books, we probably could have gotten some pretty good measurements from them. But, but we had to go backwards and actually draw them according to the principles that were apparent in, in the, um, in the, in the, in the visual information that was there. Similarly, there was no model of, uh, Mises, um, uh courtyard building and so we actually had to build a model of the co- courtyard building um and like uh, and McCarter was doing the same thing actually at Washington University in St. Louis we we built um uh you know our 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 remeasuring of the tam measured his our redrawing of um the uh of Exeter library of all the floor plans were were highly accurate and um and and if you hope oh, oh, superimpose them over almost all the published drawings. The published drawings are, well, they've been published one too many times and they're distorted. Um so it was it was uh it was nice to finally actually take four canonical buildings and make sure that within our text and our explanation we hadn't borrowed the same old tired images uh, and made um, um sort of gestures at it we actually took the time out to go and rework and rediscover exactly what was going on formally in there um uh it it took a while um and uh and i think that that's actually one of the nice things in the book is that uh much like simon unwins uh uh, uh re recasting of the um barcelona pavilion in his book um 20 buildings that every architect ought to know um he he restored some of uh mies's logic uh to the um uh, in its availability to the general discourse um which you know Beats, beats the heck out of um, you know the same tired photographs from 1935.
1: And and I just want to make sure that you know that I'm I'm asking you to talk about it because I think it's important to to be explicit about this. And I actually applaud the choices that you made. And there's a reason that. People tend to want to give lip service to the global, and, you know, NAAB and our accrediting organizations are really forcing us to, to somehow um, embody this idea yeah. that global is better. But if we take the argument that you're making in the book, which is that there are archetypes, that there's a language, that students need to start to learn the language before they can get to the higher levels of complexity, in some sense, it really doesn't matter what examples that you're using. And I think that uh, the, the choice to use buildings that you know well or that are buildings that you feel have been um, important in your own architectural lives, and then also to make sure that you sort of embody them new by really looking at what they should be and redrawing them and building them, this is the best lesson I think we can give to the students you know, if you're in China, you can have examples there that you feel are very meaningful and the methodology holds. And the same thing goes for the absolute most iconic building. And so I think, in fact, what, what you're doing is um, embodying this global notion in a completely different way, which is to say, if we believe that there is method to teaching architecture, if we believe that our students need to be global citizens who can go from place to place, we have to give them some tools and this, isn't, this is not about the canon. This is about the tools. And so I, I'm asking you to talk about it because I think it needs to be said. I don't want to leave it as an undiscussed issue because I think you can hold this up and say to people, you know, this is not about whether the examples are from Rome. This is about right. teaching our students to be able to be good designers.
0: I mean, well, yeah, I, I, I assumed you asked the question because it was yeah. sitting there like the elephant in the room. <laughs>
1: Yeah, but well, I, I think there, some I people might not want to talk about. Does at
2: work too? But I agree. I mean, if, if I were, if we were to um, ask uh, one of or two of our colleagues uh, from who have expertise in other parts of the world, then I would I would have the expectation that they would choose examples that they were more familiar with, because that they would then be able to draw the same lessons, and they would be able to um, uh, extract those lessons. Uh, and and reveal them to this to the students um, based on their their deep knowledge that is embedded within those projects, and the, the students would then be able to carry those lessons uh, to to where to wherever they to wherever they found them useful. Um, I, I would love for someone to spe- send me to China for a year, and I would study the Forbidden City. Uh, and there were a number of examples. Uh, for instance uh that we considered that ultimately we had more examples than we could use, and Forbidden City, for instance, which is a masterpiece of axial planning um, in the end um, i couldn 't spend enough time getting to know it well enough to be able to use it in in a a learned way uh, that would you know that would you know this you know doing a book for the first time is kind of scary because. Uh, you expose your own level of awareness about a subject in a way that 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 uh, is different than you know speaking in front of a group of students, and so you, you feel as if you really have to know what you 're talking about when when you 're going to publish a book and so um that 's i think in the end why i, I won 't speak for michael but i I relied ultimately on examples that i i knew deeply and that i felt could i could extract uh as you said tools or principles that could be portable that students could then take and apply you know and could find or could have application just about anywhere universal application
1: Mm -hmm. so we're we're coming to the end of our hour so I just want to give each of you a chance to uh, say anything else that, that you want to say. And I thank you both so much for taking the time to talk to us. So, you know, take a minute or two each and, and any kind of closing comments that you want to make.
0: Well, I'll, uh, I'll speak first and um, that'll give Jeff the chance to uh, be the last voice. Um, first, first of all, thank you for doing the interview, Kimberly. It was, it was really pleasurable. I, I, um, my hope is that um, folks will, uh, of course, buy the book, but mostly that they'll argue with us. Um, uh, if in fact we are going to try and have this thing move forward, I think I'd like to know how it fails from another point of view. Um, what would make it a better a, a better target? Um, what 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 things got left in there that are too um, local to our own teaching? And which things seem to have a broader um, a broader reach? Because uh, that's something again I cannot imagine. Um, I, I would really rely on on commentary because I, I I would like more than anything else to have the chance to do a second edition and and make it the broader text that it was it's trying to be um, rather than the local reporting of um, two folks who are working real hard to do their job.
2: Well, I would follow up in the same vein and i would say that that i would use the word discussion because i'm canadian rather than argument <laughs> and uh there i managed to finally get in a canadian joke um uh the venue for that could be anywhere could be you know hopefully uh we'll have a chance to, to meet people who have taken the time to read the book and we thank you for this opportunity but a, a wonderful venue I'm going to put a plug in here because I'm, I'm, you know we're past contributors and and um, I'm a past co-chair of uh, the Beginning Design Conference, the NCBDS, which this year is going to be held uh, hosted by uh, Temple University. Um, uh, Beginning Design conference is a, a wonderful venue for people who are really interested in pedagogy and it sounds as if we're only interested in people who teach design and first year, but that's not the case. And we've had a lot of historians come and talk about what they do and the way that they deliver uh, history and the challenges that they face as well. And it's not limited, uh, again, not just to architecture, but to anyone who teaches design. And th- we have amazing discussions, both in a formal setting and also, you know, off 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 the record. And it, um, I, I I'm putting that plug in because... You know, a lot of people are really passionate about teaching, and I, I, I having venues for you know pushing the envelope, pushing things forward, um, developing ways of um, you know extending the discipline of of teaching, and, and making things uh, you know less uh, I don't know off the cuff, and and really beginning to have uh, substantive discussions about what is effective in terms of teaching design. Um, and uh, other forms of knowledge within a design setting, design school setting. Um, anyway, that that's where I hope that these discussions will happen. Um, th- these were some of where some of the ideas for this book uh, came about at the at the conferences like this. And so um, I'm hoping that anyone who's listened to this will will be motivated, perhaps to 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 look up that conference, perhaps to submit something, and maybe. Uh, we'll end up having a conversation at a future conference. So that's that's where I'll leave things. Thank you again, Kimberly. This is a wonderful opportunity. To, thank Thanks
1: so much, guys. You've been listening to an interview with Jeffrey Balmer and Michael Swisher, the authors of Diagramming the Big Idea, Methods for Architectural Composition, published by Rutledge in 2012. I'm Kimberly Zerkor, the host of New Books in Architecture. Thanks for listening and join us soon for more interviews.